Hi, and welcome to A16Z Live, where we serve up the best conversations from A16Z experts and events. What follows is a recording of a live conversation. The audio has been edited and abridged for clarity. As a reminder, please note that the content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com slash disclosures. Okay, I'm pleased to introduce Ben Horowitz. So Ben, right. welcome. Thank you. I, so we're talking about culture. And I thought we'd start with someone I know is one of your uh, heroes, mm -hmm. Andy Grove. Yeah. And Andy, people think of as a management guru, but obviously the overlap between great management and building great culture is a lot. So I thought it'd be great to hear some about what have you taken away from your many studies with Andy, including as it relates to culture, yeah, well, it kind of, kind of just to set at the top, I think people get culture confused <laughs> um, with uh, like values on the wall, you know, oh, integrity, we have each other's backs, all this kind of stuff that people put on the wall and then don't do. Um, and I think so when you think about culture, and I thought, uh, you know, Bushido had kind of the best uh, definition, which is culture is not a set of beliefs, it's a set of actions. Um, and... Andy was really, really good on that front. So if you think about it, the reason it doesn't work is put in your annual review or um, you know, put values on the wall and so forth is because it's, it's culture is the little things. Like do you, somebody calls you a colleague, do you call them back in five minutes, in an hour, the next day, or do you just drop them on the floor and never call them back at all? Um, like that's culture and that drives a lot of things. You know, do you show up on time for meetings or five minutes late or 10 minutes late? Is everybody late? Like, you know, these are the cultural things that actually end up driving, you know, what it really feels like to work there and, and what it's like to do business with you. And Andy really understood that at an amazing level. So he did things that seemed absurd <laughs> uh, when you hear about him. Like he would get to work at eight in the morning and then like see who was there <laughs> and if they weren't there like he would write them up and then he would check their desk to see if it was clean and it was really important that you had a clean desk and you're like well wh why do you care if somebody has a clean desk well it's intel so intel was about precision the cost of a miss on a tape out is extraordinary so when you're about precision like how do you get that into the culture well it starts with, when I go to work, like I need my desk to be clean because Andy cares about everything being right. Um, and so like little things like that that he would do to set the whole tone. But I, I give you my favorite story from Andy. Um, so after he had retired and he was at the Grove Foundation, I went to go see him. Um, it's a little office, the Grove Foundation. Um, like very, you know, kind of, as you would expect from Andy Grove, kind of, you know, low key. And he had one picture on the wall <laughs> and it was this framed award that he got the Santa Clara Manufacturing Facility Leadership Award to Andy Grove. <laughs> right? And I go, Andy, like, of all the, you know, he was Time Magazine Man of the Year. He's like one of the greatest CEOs, maybe the greatest CEO in the history of Silicon Valley. He's got this Santa Clara, you know, 
manufacturing facility <laughs> award for leadership. I was like, why do you have that on the wall? Why'd they give you the award? You're the CEO. Like, why are they giving the CEO the, the, the manufacturing facility um, award? And he says, well, Ben, he said, you know, they were ranked the lowest in maintenance in all of, you know, Intel. Like, the, they had the worst facility, under spec, terrible. So I go over there, you know, to talk to them about it. And they just start hitting me with all this bullshit about, like, how they don't have the right resources and how this was unfair and da-da-da-da-da-da. And so I reach under my chair and I pull out a roll of toilet paper and I put it on the desk and I said, when you're done cleaning up your bullshit, tell me when you're going to be up to spec. <laughs> and he said within three months it was the highest rated facility at Intel. Well, let's go from him to another, uh, uh, I'm not sure what word to say, dominant figure, still scares the hell out of me, <laughs> uh, Bill Campbell, and talk about what are some things that you've taken away from Bill about building culture that are useful to share with people here? Yeah, so, so Bill was like a very different guy than Andy Grove. So like when I look at Andy Grove, I, as a CEO, I go, I don't know that I did anything better than him. Like he was so good at all aspects of that job, just incredible. Bill wasn't like that in that, you know, like there was things he was good at, things he wasn't that good at, but the thing that he was great at he was better than anybody that I've ever met, um, which is he could, like, when you met him, he would get a read on you within, like, three minutes, and then he would remember, like, you, your wife's name, your kids, like, where you grew up, all that stuff, like, forever. So I go all around. I still run into people who knew Bill Campbell, and they're all like, Bill's the greatest guy in the world. Like, everybody loved that guy because he was so good at the people skills. The only person I ever ran into who had that like him was Oprah. Like, that's how good he was. He was Oprah level at really understanding people. And the thing that it translated into from a management standpoint was one of the hardest things to do to, and it's a most, one of the most important things culturally is when you're talking to somebody, realize you're not talking to that person. You're talking to everybody in the company. You have to represent the people who are not in the room. Um, and Bill was really, really good at that. You know, when I was running LoudCloud, uh, we did this big deal to kind of get out of what would have been a business that took us bankrupt by selling the services component to EDS and then kind of becoming a software company. And um, I was talking to Bill on the phone saying, you know, like we just did this big deal and like it's really exciting, I'm gonna announce it. And he goes, you're selling a lot of the employees to EDS and you're laying a bunch of people off. I was like, yeah, I gotta do that the next day. <laughs> and he goes, no, 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 you can't go to New York. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He said, all anybody in the company is gonna to wanna to know is where they stand as soon as that news comes out. You, you, you can't wait a minute. You have to tell them simultaneous with the announcement. Um, and I was like, oh, of course. You know, as soon as he said it, I knew it was right. Um, and so I sent Andreessen to New York to do the announcement and I did the layoff uh, and told everybody where they were. But we ended up recovering as a company and you know, selling it to Hewlett Packard for you know, $1.6 billion. But none of that would have happened if I had gone to New York. Like it was that important a moment and he could see it 
so obviously, he really um, always started there. How's everybody gonna re how's everybody gonna understand what happens? Let's talk about how CEOs go from, uh, I'll call it the, the struggle, both struggling to be a good CEO and struggling with the company to being a great CEO. It's one thing that I think happens when people come to a conference like this is they see people like you and they think, well, I'm not like that. Like, I, how do I get to be that good? And in, in particular, I thought it's interesting to talk about Todd McKinnon and Okta, where we work with Todd. And yeah. I often say Todd's one, I actually call him the most improved CEO I ever worked with. And you were a CEO coach, so what'd you do? <laughs> well, I think you gotta give more credit to Todd, but. <laughs> Look, here's the thing that happens to CEOs, um, and I know a lot of you are CEOs, so you get this. The thing that makes you good is some combination of competence and confidence. And the difficulty with boards and VCs um, is they're really good at identifying what you can't do. Um, and so it's like, oh, you, you can't do marketing. You, you don't really know finance or, or, or whatever it does. And the problem with that is if you can't do it, like just hearing that you can't do it, is, all it does is mess up your, your confidence and your, your kind of flow. Um, and so that's not always like that helpful. Um, but the, the, the phrase I always keep in mind when I'm working with somebody like that is coach them on what they can do, which is from Al Davis, the old Raiders owner. And that's like really the case, I think, with CEOs. So Todd got himself into trouble, if you recall, um, because they had the wrong go-to-market. Okta had this kind of bottoms-up go-to-market, um, but at the time, you know, for a security product, it was only actually interesting, one, to larger companies and, you know, because little companies don't care that much about security. They have nothing to lose. And then the other thing is uh, that it only kind of worked if everybody was on Okta. So they had to sell the whole company at once. So you needed a different sales motion. Um, and he just didn't know anything about go-to-market. He had been like a VP of engineering at Salesforce. But I just said, look, Todd, let me help you. Um, and to Todd's credit, he said, okay. It, it was just like, Todd, you know, you're great at running the company. You're great on the leadership side. You just don't know how to do this. So like, let me just help you do that. And then once he was, got that, then he got his confidence together. And then he just got better at everything. Um, what do you think about the culture that he and Freddie have built there and any lessons for the CEOs here? Yeah, so, so to me, the, the thing that they did culturally that was the most important for them, and this is really important on culture, is the thing that went with the company. So the, because they were a security company, um, trust was always such a big thing for them um, that that was kind of like a big component of the culture. Like, okay, you have to be able to trust us. And actually, it almost lost them the company. They were missing every quarter at that time. And they got to, you know, they had this deal, but the sales guy had promised um, features that they weren't gonna have for two years that would be there in a quarter. And so they had to decide whether to take the order, get the round done, and keep it moving. Um, but Todd was like, no, it's so important that like, if there's a story where I okay a lie, like I'll never get that out of the company. And so they told the truth. They didn't get the deal. They whiffed the quarter. We almost didn't get the round. And I think David led the B round with like $7 million check. Like that's how like it was like 
by the, you know, by your fingernails they were hanging on. Um, but that cultural thing, right, kind of led to, they always put reliability and security ahead of features in their development. And they were neck and neck with this company, One Login, um, who was actually turning out features much, much faster. But one day, One Login got breached because uh, they did not have that value. They didn't have that kind of belief. And that was the end of the competition. They, we never saw them again. I mean, Okta just destroyed them after that. And so, you know, that, that's one where a, a cultural thing, if you commit to it, and it really goes with the business strategy, um, can have a huge payoff. And that, that, that's probably the best thing that I, that I saw them do. Okay. So changing gears, a topic yeah. that both of us care about is, yeah. well, what I call diversity, but I've listened to you explain this as that that's the wrong way to think about it. And yeah. it's better to think about it as talent discovery or... Well, well talent, yeah, yeah. So, like, I think diversity is like a misdiagnosed problem because it's diagnosed as like racism and sexism, and that's why things aren't diverse. And that's not really what's going on um, on diversity for the most part. What's going on is profiling how do you hire somebody? Well, I know what I'm good at, I value it highly, and I can test for it in an interview, so I'm going to hire me. That's generally how it works. And if you look at any organization, you know, if, it's, if you've got a group that's run by a Chinese person, there will be a lot of Chinese people there. If you have a group run by a woman, there'll be a lot of women there. It's just like, that's the way it goes. Um, and I, you can look at almost any organization and it works out this way. And it gets very dangerous if you try and not see the talent and just see the gender or color. And let me give you a great story on that. So Steve Stout, who spoke here a few years ago, I think, called me up one day and he says, Ben, I used to be president of Sony Urban Music. And I, of course, already knew that because I'd known him for years, but he was setting me up <laughs> for a story. And I said, yes, Steve, I know that. He said, yeah, but it wasn't urban music. It was black music, but they made me call it urban music because calling it black music would have been racist. And I said, well, that's kind of silly. He said, no, 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 that wasn't the dumb part. The dumb part was because we called it urban music, I wasn't allowed to market in rural areas like all black people lived in the city. I was like, wow, that's crazy. He said, you're not even listening to me, Ben. I was president of Sony Urban Music. I had Michael Jackson. What white people don't like Michael Jackson? It wasn't black music, it was music. What are they talking about? And then if you fast forward from that era of the urban music department and the black section in Tower Records to today, go look on Spotify, look at the top 100. Like more than 70% of the business is black music. It wasn't black music, it wasn't a niche. It was just music. And just, you know, because some executives had a diversity program <laughs> to help them, they niched it into this tiny market that was much smaller than what its actual reach was. And that's what we end up doing, you know, with, I call it urban HR, where you have a diversity department run by somebody who's completely disconnected from the culture of, that you want for the rest of the company. And they're putting people through a side door instead of through the front door because you can't see the talent. And so you've got to develop the ability to see talent that you don't have. And so you know what I measure? I don't care about how many, like of any kind of people we have. All I care about is attrition, job satisfaction, promotion rates. Can I tell what race or gender you are? And if I can't, then I'm good. 
because that's what matters. Like, are you, if you're a great place to work for people of all different talents and backgrounds and cultures, then like you're going to be attractive to that. You have to understand that talent base to be that. And, you know, you have to be able to evaluate it. And so, you know, that is, uh, you, in my view, you, you have to put in the work. You have to understand talent that you don't have. You have to network to people that you don't know. And if you just try and shortcut it by going like, we're going to hire X number of this gender and this race and this orientation, then you're going to ruin your culture and your environment because everybody's going to question everybody. Like you can't unsee the hiring process. Last two questions. Uh, one, this question's basically about how to make trade-offs where you can't optimize for everything. You and I were talking about how we remember hundreds of years ago when we were at Netscape and we had a star engineer who was critical, was mm -hmm. quitting because he'd gotten a higher offer somewhere else. And I came to you and I said, well, we need to retain this person. And it wasn't that big a deal to match the offer. Like we could yeah. afford it. And you said, no, we're like not doing that because the lesson was like, if we do that with this guy, then we got to do it with everybody else. But how do people know when to when do they match offers? When do they do something? And sometimes there is a short-term emergency where if you don't do it, you're dead. So how do you decide whether to optimize for the long-term or the near-term? And how do you think about that? Yeah, so look, I think that one thing that people care about a lot in a company and in life is, you know, fairness. Like, is there some set of, like, rules at work that, if I do my job, if I make my contribution and so forth, like I'm gonna be treated fairly. Like that, that's a big thing. By the way, it's also a big thing on diversity. It's like, it's like, okay, are you just gonna promote your buddies, your clique, your people like you, or do I have a real chance here? And so it's such an important underpinning of, you know, everything you, you wanna do kind of culturally, job satisfaction wise and so on. And so look at that, you know, my, <laughs> management kind of philosophy at that time and, and the way we were doing things is like we evaluate everybody on a frequent basis and together and then whoever is performing the best that's who gets the raise not the person who quits and gets another job offer not the person who asked for it and so forth and so that was the principle so you know for me like that that was more important than any individual just at, at that time now look, Reed Hastings has a whole another philosophy, which is you have to get another offer in order to get a raise at Netflix, or at least that's kind of what he indicates in his book. And so, you know, there are different ways to go about it, but I think that you have to be, it has to be like transparent, fair, principled. And if we had given him the raise there, it would have been anything but that, because the whole thing that we had agreed upon was like we had this process. and. So anybody who followed the process got screwed. And I was to me, that, that's never going to happen. I never want to penalize people for not asking for a raise, for not like going to get another job and so forth. You, I'd much rather, you know, um, give people a reward for being like loyal and honest and, and doing what we ask them to do than like this other shadow way of doing things. Okay, last yeah. question. When Opsworth was acquired by HP, I, you made a comment about what it was like to work at HP, that it was like nobody cared. It wasn't <laughs> their company. 
Yeah. And yeah, at that time, at that time, which was sad because that's one time that was different. Yeah. And one thing that clearly helps a company succeed is having the whole company be resilient and having ownership and having the whole company be courageous. So for a closing thought, what, what would you, what advice would you give to CEOs to set a resilient culture? Look, at this point, and most of you are probably at this stage in your company where it feels like every, for everybody who works there, like they'd only work there if they felt like it was their company. It's a startup, like we're all in this together. Um, this is my company. Whatever I contribute is going to matter because this is something that I built. Um, and that feeling, um, the longer you can preserve it at the high enough, the higher the scale, the better your company is going to be, just in like very rough terms. And then, you know, at Hewlett Packard, at the end, you know, nobody felt like it was their company. They were on their fourth professional CEO or whatever. And, you know, everybody was there for a paycheck. And the difference in, like, the quality of the company, the ability to do new things, everything, um, really relies on that. You know, whether, am I working there or is it my company? And, you know, it's why, you know, one of the, the amazing things about Amazon that you see, you know, almost throughout Jeff's tenure, like he was able to maintain that idea that people at Amazon really felt like Amazon was theirs at giant scale. So you can, you now you lose it. It's never as good as in the very beginning. So you lose it over time, but the slower you lose it, the better off you are. So it's a really kind of, you know, when you think about culture and management and all these kinds of things, it's really important to keep that in mind. If I do this, will everybody feel like it's their company? Okay, thank you very much, Ben. Okay, thank you, everyone. Thank you.